This is Space Time Series 27, Episode 6, for broadcast on the 12th of January, 2024. Coming up on Space Time, distant stars spotted in the Magellanic Stream for the first time, NASA begins testing its new shooting star space plane, and the Deep Space Network turns 60. All that and more coming up on Space Time. Welcome to Space Time with Stuart Gary. Astronomers have discovered 13 stars in the Magellanic Stream, a colossal ribbon of high-velocity neutral hydrogen gas spanning the Magellanic Cloud galaxies, which are two of the Milky Way galaxies' nearest cosmic neighbours. The Magellanic Stream leading arm extends over 600,000 light-years from the large and small Magellanic Cloud galaxies through the galactic south pole of the Milky Way. Its composition suggests that it's mostly composed of gas from the small Magellanic Cloud, which is less massive and so less able to hold onto its gas. A separate stream of neutral hydrogen known as the Magellanic Bridge links the two Magellanic Clouds. Observations have already shown there's a continuous stream of stars throughout the Magellanic Bridge with a greater constellation of stars nearer the small Magellanic Cloud. But for nearly 50 years, astronomers have been coming up empty when they searched for stars in the Magellanic Stream. Now, the star search is finally over, with astronomers identifying 13 stars whose distances, motion and chemical makeup place the stars squarely within the enigmatic stream. And locating these stars has now finally also pinned down the true distance to the Magellanic Stream, revealing that it extends from 150,000 light-years to more than 400,000 light-years away. The findings, reported in the Astrophysical Journal, paved the way for astronomers to map and model the Magellanic Stream in unprecedented detail, thereby offering new insights into the history and characteristics of both our galaxy and its two near neighbours. The study's lead author, Vinant Chandra, from the Harvard-Smithsonian Center for Astrophysics, says the Magellanic Stream dominates the southern hemisphere skies. And with these results, scientists hope to gain a far greater understanding of the formation of the Magellanic Stream and the Magellanic Clouds, as well as their past and future interactions with our own galaxy, the Milky Way. With the advent of increasingly powerful telescopes able to perceive phenomena too faint for the human eye to see, astronomers in the early 1970s discovered a gigantic plume of hydrogen gas apparently cast out by the Magellanic Clouds. Studies of the gas within this Magellanic stream, as it became known, further showed the stream to have two interwoven filaments, with one originating from each cloud. And these suggest that the gravity of the Milky Way galaxy might have pulled the Magellanic stream out of the clouds. Yet exactly how the Magellanic stream formed has remained challenging to nail down, partly because its presumed stellar components have until now remained indiscernible. So... Chandra began by studying the uncharted frontier of the Milky Way, the scant stars dotting our galaxy's outskirts, which have been little studied because our solar system's smack bang in the middle of the starry disk of the Milky Way, and that's like a concert goer near the stage trying to see someone who's just entered the arena and is still at the outer edge of the crowd. But over the past decade, deep observational catalogues have been compiled by new instruments, including the European Space Agency's Gaia spacecraft. This has allowed astronomers to start spying stellar objects that might just be these elusive frontier stars. 
Then, using the 6.5-metre Magellan Bayed Telescope at the Las Campanas Observatory in Chile, Chandra and colleagues were able to perform spectroscopy on 200 far-flung Milky Way stars, which, when completed, will be the largest such sample survey to date. Spectroscopy involves collecting enough light from an object to detect specific chemical signatures, imprints within the light's colour bands that, like fingerprints, uniquely identify individual chemical elements. These signatures disclose the chemical makeup of an object and therefore speak to its origins. Now importantly, these chemical signatures also shift based depending on the object's distance, or really the speed at which it's moving away from us, which in turn is an expression of distance. The spectroscopic analysis revealed a set of 13 stars with distances and velocities that fall right within the range expected for the Magellanic Stream. And the star's chemical abundances match those for the Magellanic Clouds. For example, they were distinctively deficient in heavier elements astronomers call metals. By obtaining solid distance and metallicity measurements for the Magellanic Stream by way of these stars, the authors showed that a gravitational tidal stream generated by the huge mass of the Milky Way best explained what was going on. The researchers were also able to calculate the stream's overall gas distribution with higher confidence compared to previous estimates. And the distribution indicates the stream's actually about twice as massive as previously thought. The findings also mean that the Milky Way itself will continue producing many more stars for many, many more generations. That's because this stream is actively falling into our galaxy, thereby serving as a primary provider of cold neutral hydrogen gas, which is needed for fresh Milky Way stars. Further studies of the Magellanic Stream will also help astronomers learn more about the composition of our own galaxy. Because the stream is thought to trace the past paths of the Magellanic Clouds, modelling the evolution of the relatively large Magellanic Cloud by way of the stream will improve measurements of the Milky Way's own mass distribution. Now much of that mass is in the form of mysterious dark matter, an invisible, poorly understood gravity-exerting substance. Better gauging the mass of our own galaxy out to its distant hinterlands will aid in accounting for ordinary matter versus dark matter contents, constraining the possible properties of the latter. This is Space Time. Still to come, NASA begins testing its new shooting star space plane and the Deep Space Network turns 60. All that and more still to come on Space Time. Okay, let's take a break from our show for a word from our sponsor, NordVPN. Today's journey through the cosmos is brought to you by NordVPN. As we delve into the mysteries of the universe, let's ensure our online world is safe and secure, especially for our families. Imagine securing every device in your home with just one account. Well, it's possible with NordVPN. I know, because it's exactly what we've done here at Spacetime. From your kids' tablets to the shared family laptop, NordVPN shields all your devices with robust encryption. And for those who love tinkering with tech, setting up NordVPN on your router means every device on your network is automatically protected. But what happens if your VPN connection suddenly drops? Well, NordVPN's kill switch feature is your guardian, preventing any data leaks and keeping your family's online privacy intact at all times. Now, let's talk about sharing and gaming securely. 
Well, with NordVPN's MeshNet feature, you can connect devices for safe file transfer and enjoy lag-free local area network or LAN gaming with friends. It's online bonding made secure and fun. Now, most importantly, NordVPN respects your privacy. They don't track your online activities, giving you freedom to explore the internet with peace of mind and keeping your kids safe. And as a space-time listener, we'll give you an exclusive NordVPN deal for supporting our show. Visit nordvpn.com slash stuartgarry and get an extra four months absolutely free. That's right, you'll secure your family's online world and you'll save money. Of course, it's risk-free with NordVPN's 30-day money-back guarantee. So just go to nordvpn.com slash stuartgarry or find the link on our website and in the show notes. So what are you waiting for? Visit nordvpn.com slash stuartgarry. Grab this exclusive offer, help support our show, and embark on your secure online journey. Your safer digital universe awaits. And now, it's back to our show. This is Space Time with Stuart Gary. The first completed Dream Chaser space plane, Tenacity, is now undergoing a comprehensive testing campaign at NASA's Neil Armstrong Test Facility in Ohio in preparation for its first orbital flight to the International Space Station. And Tenacity is now being joined in Ohio by the first completed Shooting Star cargo module, which will eventually be attached to the rear of the space plane to increase capacity. Shooting Star is an expendable pressurized cargo module capable of carrying an additional four and a half tons of supplies and equipment on top of the five tons the Dream Chaser will transport. It boasts three external mounting ports, enhancing its versatility in space operations. Under NASA's Commercial Resupply Services 2 contract, the Dream Chaser and Shooting Star will transport critical science, food and other cargo to the space station from this year. The reusable Dream Chaser space plane will return to Earth after each mission, loaded with completed experiments and equipment, landing on the former space shuttle runway at the Kennedy Space Center. Shooting Star, however, is expendable. It'll be filled with space station disposable waste and then undocked and allowed to burn up in Earth's atmosphere. Dream Chaser was originally designed to transport up to seven people on crew transfer missions to the space station, but it lost out to SpaceX's Dragon capsule and the troubled Boeing CST-100 Starliner in NASA's commercial crew transport contract. Instead, Dream Chaser's been awarded a commercial cargo contract, and it's lucrative enough that as well as tenacity, a second Dream Chaser is currently under construction. A third Dream Chaser was built as an engineering demonstrator for ground and flight verification and validation tests. Once approved for spaceflight by NASA, the Dream Chaser system will launch with its wings folded inside a 5-metre fairing aboard a United Launch Alliance Vulcan Centaur rocket from Space Launch Complex 41 at the Cape Canaveral Space Force Station in Florida. The fairing panels are designed to protect the spacecraft during its ascent into orbit, and they're jettisoned once clear of Earth's atmosphere. Sierra Space say each of their Dream Chaser space planes will be able to fly at least 15 missions over a 10-year lifespan. Sierra Space also plans to use Dream Chaser to launch and build its own orbiting habitat in space before NASA retires the International Space Station in 2030. The Dream Chaser lifting body design isn't new. In fact, it goes back over 60 years with its origins in the United States Air Force 1957 X-20 Dinosaur spacecraft, a manned space plane which would have been launched aboard a modified Titan III rocket. 
When NASA was formed in 1958, it continued with the development of the Dream Chaser concept through the 1960s and early 70s. There were a range of experimental spacecraft or variations of the same design. These include the Northrop M2, the Martin X-23 Prime, the Martin Marinetta X-24 and the Northrop HL-10. Then during the 1990s, NASA used the same basic design to develop the HL-20, an experimental space plane which eventually evolved into the X-38 emergency crew return vehicle, which was meant to be an emergency escape pod transported to the International Space Station in the payload bay of the space shuttle. It would then have simply docked to the orbiting outpost until needed. However, that project was cancelled in 2002 following budget cuts. As for the Shooting Star cargo module, which will be attached to the Dream Chaser, well, the Pentagon's been looking at that as a potential autonomous unmanned military space station for research and development, training and operational missions in low-Earth orbit. Sierra Space Plan are designing a version of the module using guidance, navigation and control systems to sustain free-flight operations. It would host specialised payloads, undertake experimental testing, the manufacturing and assembly of components in microgravity, and carry a range of logistics. Longer-term plans would include higher elliptical and geosynchronous Earth orbits, as well as more distant lunar missions. This is Space Time. Still to come, NASA's Deep Space Network turns 60. And later in the Science Report... New studies warn that droughts will become more frequent and more severe as climate change takes hold. All that and more still to come on Space Time. NASA's Deep Space Network, which provides crucial communications and navigation services for dozens of missions, has just turned 60. The Deep Space Network's roots extend back to 1957, when JPL, the Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California, which is attached to Caltech, was contracted by the U.S. Army to deploy portable radio tracking stations to receive telemetry from the first successful U.S. satellite, Explorer 1, which was also built by JPL. A few days after Explorer 1's launch, but before the creation of NASA later that year, JPL was tasked with figuring out what would be needed to create an unprecedented telecommunications network capable of supporting future deep space operations, beginning with the Pioneer missions. After NASA was formed in 1958, JPL's ground stations were named Deep Space Information Facilities, and they operated largely independently from one another until 1963. That's when the Deep Space Network was officially founded and the ground stations were connected to JPL's new network control centre, which was then nearing completion. Called the Space Flight Operations Facility, the building remains the centre of the universe, through which data from the Deep Space Network's three global complexes flow. The dazzling galactic images captured by the James Webb Space Telescope, the cutting-edge science being sent back to Earth by the Mars Perseverance rover, and historic images sent from the far side of the Moon by the Artemis I mission all reach Earth by way of the network's giant radio dish antennas. Currently, more than 40 missions depend on the network, but that's expected to more than double over the coming years. And because of this, NASA are expanding and modernising its crucial infrastructure with new dishes and new technologies. To ensure spacecraft are always connected with Earth, the Deep Space Network's 14 antennas are divided between three complexes spaced equally around the world. 
They're located in Goldstone, California, Madrid, Spain, and at Tidbin Billa, just outside Canberra in Australia. The 60th anniversary comes as the network undertakes a major modernization program. To make sure the network can maximize coverage between so many missions, NASA's also been busy making improvements to increase capacity. These range from upgrading and adding new dishes to developing new technologies that will help support more spacecraft and dramatically increase the amount of data that can be delivered. This includes new laser optical communication systems, which enable far more data to be packed into a transmission. The Deep Space Network's Deputy Project Manager, Amy Smith from JPL, says laser communications could transform how NASA communicates with faraway space missions. After successfully testing the technique first in Earth orbit and then out as far as the Moon, NASA is currently using the Deep Space Optical Communications Technology Demonstration to test laser communications from even greater distances aboard the Psyche mission. The latest test has sent video communications by way of laser over a distance of 31 million kilometres, and the current plan is to send high bandwidth data from beyond Mars. Smith says NASA's proving that laser communications is viable, and so the team is now looking at ways to build optical terminals inside the existing radio antennas. These hybrid antennas will still be able to transmit and receive radio frequencies, but will also support the new optical frequencies. As well as communications and navigation, the Deep Space Network's also used for scientific research, such as gravity and radio wave experiments. These can tell scientists characteristics about celestial bodies being visited by spacecraft, as this report from NASA TV explains. NASA has dozens of robotic spacecraft exploring our solar system and beyond. Scientists and engineers communicate with and navigate faraway spacecraft using the Deep Space Network, NASA's international collection of giant radio antennas used to communicate with spacecraft at the moon and beyond. But the Deep Space Network, or DSN, is more than just a messaging service. In fact, scientists use the DSN to perform radio and gravity science experiments. But what is radio and gravity science, and how can it help us learn more about the planets, moons, and other small bodies in our solar system? We're all familiar with gravity. It's the force by which an object attracts other objects, such as a planet pulling a spacecraft toward it. Gravity is also the force that keeps all of the planets in orbit around the sun. Here on Earth, we experience this every day. If you drop an object, it will accelerate toward the ground because Earth's gravity causes it to fall faster and faster. And the acceleration of a spacecraft toward a planet depends on the mass of the planet. Less mass means less gravitational pull. These properties of gravity, combined with our understanding of radio waves, help us use gravity to study other planetary bodies in our solar system. After reaching its destination, a spacecraft uses radio antennas to communicate with the deep space network on Earth, which in turn transmits radio signals back to the spacecraft. Every spacecraft travels in a predetermined path, emitting radio signals as it orbits around its target. Scientists and engineers can infer the spacecraft's location and how fast it's going by measuring changes in the spacecraft's radio signal frequency. This is made possible by the Doppler effect, the same phenomenon that causes a siren to sound different as it travels towards and away from you. 
The Doppler phenomenon is observed here when the spacecraft and the DSN antenna move in relation to each other. Differences between the frequency of radio signals sent by the spacecraft as it orbits and signals received on Earth give us details about the gravitational field of a planetary body. For example, if the gravity is slightly stronger, the spacecraft will accelerate slightly more. If gravity is slightly weaker, the spacecraft will accelerate slightly less. By developing a model of the planetary body's gravitational field, which can be mapped as a gravitational shape, scientists and researchers can deduce information about its internal structure, all while using the Deep Space Network. This is Space Time. And time now to take another brief look at some of the other stories making news in science this week with a science report. The latest study into reducing your risk of getting Alzheimer's disease claims getting at least 140 minutes of vigorous exercise every week is optimal. The findings reported in the Lancet Medical Journal use data from a long-term health survey in the United States looking at how moderate and vigorous exercise interacted with the risk of going on to die as a result of Alzheimer's. The researchers say they did not find an association between moderate exercise and Alzheimer's risk. However, vigorous exercise between 20 and 190 minutes a week was associated with a lower risk of death from Alzheimer's, with 140 minutes estimated to be the optimal amount. A new study has confirmed that droughts will become more frequent and more severe under climate change. The findings, reported by the United Nations Convention to Combat Desertification, outlines how different regions are already experiencing more numerous and intense droughts and how food insecurity will further increase in the coming decades. The report's authors warn that drought can often be a silent hazard compared to other disasters that occur more rapidly. However, they have severe impacts on lives and economies wherever they occur. A new study warns that living at home with your parents well into your adulthood isn't good for your mental health. The rate of young adults who are still living at home with their parents well into their 20s has increased by about 18% over the past 20 years. The findings reported in the journal PLOS One are based on a large Australian housing income and work database looking at the amount and types of young people staying at home with their parents. The authors found the number of young people staying at home has increased most sharply among people living outside major cities, among older adults and among women and low-income groups. The researchers found that living with parents was associated with poorer mental health. But this association differed depending on the young person, with those aged 18 to 21 likely to actually have better mental health if they lived at home longer. The association between living with parents and poorer mental health was strongest among older groups who had seen the highest increase in living at home over the study period. The Indian government is once again actively pushing worthless pseudoscience as medical treatments. Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptic says the issue has now become so bad, legitimate medical practitioners are being cancelled by government officials so as to keep the fake treatments going. The Indian government has a department, a ministry called Ayush, which 
stands for the Ayurveda, Yoga, Hunani, Siddha, and Homeopathy. And it is promoting, one, it's promoting research on these things, which is a decent thing to do to see if they actually work. Two, it's promoting the uh, modalities because they think it works already, right? And strangely, homeopathy is in that mix, even though that's about as un-Indian as you can get. That's a European-based thing, which is thoroughly debunked and shouldn't be mixed in with anything. Ayurveda is a traditional Indian medicine that's quite widely used in India, especially in a place where there's sort of proper medical facilities aren't that widespread or aren't that effective. Yoga we know about, it's because, yeah, exercise routine has a spiritual element to it. Naturopathy, another Western idea based on the idea of vitalism, that the body can cure itself or you need is a bit of a nut. And Unani and Siddha, which are variations of Ayurveda, they all rely on the humors, you know, earth, air, sky, water or blood, bile, whatever you want to sort of particular ones you want to use. And depending on which one, it has various different numbers of humors. And Unani is actually a Western Indian and keep going West Persian Arabic system that relies on the humors to cure things. It's got an ancient background in, in ancient Greek uh, medicine. Um, Hippocrates, that's the stuff. Siddha is similar, mainly in the south of India, again, based on humors. There's a lot of practitioners of this stuff and hundreds of thousands of practitioners going through, especially rural India, where medical facilities are not good if they exist. And therefore, people, these people are going through and they're offering herbal cures and all sorts of various things like that. The problem is that it's unregulated. The practitioners are not certified. It's various slackness as far as the standardized doses blow. You've got unknown ingredients in a lot of them. They might be adulterated in any case. They might be dangerous, contaminated ingredients and all sorts of issues with them. One of which some complains is that some of the homeopathic treatments have too much alcohol in them, which is interesting thing. That you take your homeopathic treatment and you get drunk. But um, the government is pushing this because it is a traditional thing. It's a bit of a pride thing, the same way as the Chinese government's pushing traditional Chinese medicine. It also acts as a bit of a buffer against poor medical evidence-based medicine facilities, especially out in regional areas, small towns, that sort of thing. And there is a movement against it. There is a scientist coming out and the scientific bodies actually saying that this is rubbish, some of it. It's certainly not helpful. And one guy in particular who's quite well known, he calls himself the liver doc on his social media. He's actually Dr. Syriac Abby Phillips. He's an Indian um, hepatologist, which I think is a liver doctor. And he's, he noticed, first of all, some of these, his, his patients using these treatments, these alternative treatments, having problems with their liver, it was damaging them. And so he has now come out. He's a bit of a social media figure. And because he's public and making criticisms, the people he's criticising get upset. There's one particular group that I think was called the uh, Himalaya Wellness Corporation, which objected to his criticism of their products, and they had him banned through the courts from X or you know, well, Twitter. What we used to call Twitter, yeah. But we used to I still call it Twitter anyway, so you know, I can't say X, it sounds silly. And uh, but yeah, so again, I mean, sort of, you've probably come across this situation where someone doesn't like what you're saying, and the same thing happened to this liver doc. Now, he's, he's quite well known, he's, he's, he appears regularly, you can look him up and uh, find out what he's saying. He's waging this campaign as, as a solo performer, if you like, against a lot of highly not just disproven but dangerous products, but also other scientific bodies are doing the same thing. Despite this, the government in India has set up this ministry to promote it, so they're in a cleft stick there. But they will continue to try and they have little successes. It's the old story, one step forward, two steps sideways, well, you know, three back, but they'll keep doing it as, as the sceptics keep doing it you know, because it's the right thing to do. Cancel culture is everywhere. Yeah. That's Tim Mendham from Australian Skeptics. And that's the show for now. 
Spacetime is available every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday through Apple Podcasts, iTunes, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Pocket Casts, Spotify, Acast, Amazon Music, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, YouTube, your favorite podcast download provider, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. Spacetime's also broadcast through the National Science Foundation on Science Zone Radio and on both iHeartRadio and TuneIn Radio. And you can help to support our show by visiting the Spacetime store for a range of promotional merchandising goodies. Or by becoming a Spacetime patron, which gives you access to triple episode commercial free versions of the show, as well as lots of bonus audio content which doesn't go to air, access to our exclusive Facebook group and other rewards. Just go to SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com for full details. And if you want more space time, please check out our blog, where you'll find all the stuff we couldn't fit in the show, as well as heaps of images, news stories, loads of videos, and things on the web I find interesting or amusing. Just go to spacetimewithstuartgary.tumblr.com. That's all one word, and that's Tumblr without the E. You can also follow us through at StuartGary on Twitter, at SpacetimeWithStuartGary on Instagram, through our Spacetime YouTube channel. And on Facebook, just go to facebook.com forward slash Spacetime with Stuart Gary. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. 